Good morning, everybody. Anybody out there had a crazy week? Anything weird? Yeah, anything weird that's happened this week that's just maybe still on your mind? Uh, even something maybe happened this morning that's got you distracted? I mean, it seems like there's all kinds of things that want to distract us from worship, isn't there? Uh, and so it's, uh, that's what, what this is a wonderful time in our lives when we can just stop and worship. We were talking about this back backstage as we were before we came. You know, um, you know, we've been here for an hour and a half, so we we got a head start on you. You know, we've we primed the pump of worship. We've sung, we prayed, we've we've devoted, <laughs> and uh, but you haven't had that chance. And so I want to encourage you right now: just take a moment and leave all that outside. It'll be there when you're done. I promise. <laughs> leave outside and let's just let's worship. This is worship time. Will you stand with us and let's sing, praising the Lord, praising the everlasting God.
everlasting God. Faithful rises be everlasting God. seated. Welcome to First Baptist Church. We're so glad that you're here. And if you're a guest with us, we're glad you're here. We hope you feel at home here at our church. And we'd love to get to know you. And one of the ways that we do that is through the guest card that's located in front of you in the pew rack. Uh, If you could take one of those out and fill it out for us. And then after the service, if you turn left and go to the Welcome Center, uh, we have a small gift for you coming and being a part of our worship gathering this morning. And uh, as we continue, we want to take a moment just to stop and pray. So I just ask you to bow your heads and pray with me for just a moment. Father, we thank you for this opportunity that we have this morning to gather together and worship you. And God, this is a special moment, uh, Lord, that we don't want to take for granted or, uh, or look over as just another Sunday. And so, Father, we invite you to meet us here and speak to us. And we thank you again for this opportunity in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. We serve a holy, holy God. Will you stand and let's sing, Holy is the Lord. We stand and lift up our hands for the joy of the Lord is our strength.
So we pour 
come before you this morning with sometimes only the breath in our body just to be able to sing praise to you Lord is a great honor I know you've set aside this time for us and so Lord it's an honor and a privilege for us to meet with you here Lord I pray that our worship in some small way has pleased you Lord that uh, our hearts have been focused on you lifting you up and, Lord, in some way, we're able to put a smile on your face, Lord. We praise you. We thank you for the opportunity. And we pray that you are glorified in our, in our time today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. Good morning. Good to see you today. Enjoyed this worship today. Uh, God is good, beautiful day he's given us, and we're glad you're here to worship with us. I'm sharing a series of sermons through the Old Testament book of Amos. And the theme, I think, or one of the themes of this book is the awesomeness of God and that we ought to fear him. The Lord is compared in the book of Amos to a roaring lion. And Amos 3.8 says, the lion has roared, who will not fear? And I think we... Uh, have a, a too casual attitude toward the greatness and the majesty of God in our, our culture and sometimes in our churches. And we need to recover something of the respect and fear of his judgment and awe of God. And Amos helps us to do that. And if you've been with us in this series so far, you know that Amos doesn't pull any punches. He's a hard-hitting guy, let me tell you. He's not politically correct. We're going to see that today. He tells the truth unvarnished. He tells it like it is. But you know, sometimes that's sort of refreshing, isn't it? To just have somebody just tell you the truth. Well, get ready, because today Amos is going to tell you the truth. He's going to say in these, this chapter uh, 6, primarily, that we look at with a couple of passages we pick up from other places, the theme of God hates your complacency, your apathy, your lack of involvement. And he's saying you are living luxurious, self-indulgent lifestyles and you've built this wealth on the backs of oppression of the poor and you are going to go be judged because of your self-indulgent, self-absorbed lives that are uninvolved in the cause of justice and the needs of the poor and those around you. I tried to tell you he was going to tell you the truth here today. That's what we're going to see. So let's, let's dive in. We've got a passage, first of all, directed to men, and then a passage directed to women. We begin with a passage to men in Amos chapter 6, beginning at verse 1. Woe to you who are complacent in Zion. So God is calling us into account for the sin of complacency or apathy 
that you don't care, that you're not involved, that as long as I'm okay, that's all I really care about. Woe to those who are at ease in Zion, King James Version says. The Living Bible says, woe to those who are living on easy street. Uh, he says, to who are complacent in Zion and who feel secure on Mount Samaria. These were the two capital cities. Zion, another name for Jerusalem, was the capital of the southern kingdom of Judah. Samaria was the capital of the northern city, uh, northern kingdom of Israel. And these were the two capitals. So there was a false sense of security in their location and in their wealth. And he says, woe to you who are complacent in Zion and to you who feel secure on Mount Samaria you notable men of the foremost nation to whom the people of Israel come. So this is directed to men as leaders, you notable men to whom the people come or to whom they look for leadership, one translation has it. You're the people they look to for leadership. Guys, let me say something to you. God has put you in a position of leadership. I really believe that God intends men to be the leaders in their home. He intends men to be leaders in church. And you have a responsibility to lead. And he's saying to these men of Israel, you're the notable men to whom the people look for leadership, and yet you are complacent. Now you see, one of the temptations, guys, for men is passivity, to be passive, to just do nothing. I think you see even in the Garden of Eden, that passivity that got us into trouble because there was not that leadership of Adam there. And God intends for you to be a leader. Now let me say, thank God for women who step up and come to church on their own and who have prayer in their home on their own or to bring their kids to church. Thank God for women who will do that when there is not that leadership of a husband or a father or a man. Thank God for that. But let me tell you guys, that's not how God intended for it to be. Uh, for her to have to take the, the lead in those matters. It, you may say, well, I hadn't been a Christian as long. She knows more of the Bible than I do. That's, what, that's fine. That's great. Depend on her, but don't let her have to be the one that leads all the time. Uh, don't let her have to be the one that, that makes those decisions. You are the notable men of Israel to whom the people look for leadership. Step up and lead. And God is saying to men, this is a temptation with us that we just that we just sit in the lazy boy, that we just let them do the other stuff, you're at ease in Zion, and he says, you notable men of the foremost nation to whom the people look, woe to you who are complacent in Zion. Is God saying anything to you there today about your need? Not for bossiness, not for overbearing, but servant leadership that just takes the role that you're to take in being a man and in being a leader. It says in verse 2, Go to Calna and look at it. Go from there to Great Hamath and go down to Gath and Philistia. Are they better off than your two kingdoms? Is their land larger than yours? What he's trying to say is there are other nations. These were cities that had already been destroyed in the judgment of God. And he's saying, you ought to learn from that, that you're no better than they. And see where complacency leads. And I think in our day today, we can look at other kingdoms and nations whose influence has waned. And we would say, can we not learn from the lessons of those around us? He says in verse 3, you put off the day of disaster and bring near a reign of terror. So by your actions of injustice that we saw in chapter 5 and complacency now, you are putting off the day of disaster. That is, 
uh, one translation says you push away any thought of disaster. Do you do that in your life? You just ever, don't ever want to think about God's judgment, so you dismiss or you push away any thought of accountability or judgment. As you're pushing away any thought of accountability, God says you're bringing near a reign of terror. And so he says in verse 4, here's this luxurious lifestyle that God condemns because it's built on the back of fraud and of injustice. You lie on beds adorned with ivory and lounge on your couches. One translation, you sprawl on your couches. And you dine on choice lambs and fattened calves. You go to the best restaurants. You have the, the best food. And verse 5, you strum away on your harps like David and improvise on musical instruments. And verse 6, you drink wine by the bowl full and use the finest lotions. But you do not grieve over the ruin of Joseph. And so God is criticizing their self-absorbed, self-centered kind of lifestyle where it's all about entertainment. What's the latest playlist, the latest songs? It's all about the, the newest restaurant. It's all about the, the, the newest furniture. It's all about uh, the, the, the newest wine list, getting drunk. It's all about the finest lotions, about whatever the day spa or whatever. He's saying these things, you, ha you have all this luxury, but you do not care about righteousness. Therefore, verse 7, you'll be among the first to go into exile. Your feasting and lounging will end, he says. So he's saying you don't grieve. Do you ever do you, ever, do you grieve over anything? Does anything in our, our culture, does anything in your life bother you that you grieve over sin? Jesus would say in the Beatitudes, blessed are they who mourn. And does anything cause you to mourn? Do you care is what God is saying to the people, to the men of Amos Day. Would you care about righteousness? Therefore, you'll be among the first to go into exile. So he's predicting the coming judgment because of their sin. Well, that's a passage to the men. Now let's look at what he says to the women, specifically to the wives, in chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. Hear this word, you cows of Bashan on Mount Samaria. Now I tried to tell you, he was going to tell you the unvarnished. He's not politically correct. He's the John the Baptist of the Old Testament, let me tell you. So Bashan was a region east of the Sea of Galilee and is still today a green area. It was known for its lush pasture, for its fattened livestock. So he is comparing the women of Samaria to the fat cows of Bashan. He's saying you're well-fed, you're self-indulgent, you think a lot about eating. He says in the next line, you women who oppress the poor and crush the needy and say to your husbands, bring us some drinks. Now, so ladies, what you want to look at here is that in my lifestyle, is there anything that is, it's all about me, and that I'm self-absorbed, and that I do not care about the needs, I'm not involved in any way in ministry or the needs around me. I want you to notice, ladies, from this verse, those of you who are wives, it's important how you talk to your husband. For just as a sin of men is that sin of passivity and failure to take leadership, sometimes that sin of women can be usurping a role. 
and provoking women are usually better verbally than men. I know that's not 100% true. I know there's some relationships where the, the man is the talker, and, but usually a woman is, is just better verbally, better verbally skilled than a guy. This, I believe God made us different. And so you wanna, I want to ask you, how do you talk to your husband? Because how you talk to your husband is important. And these women were provoking their husbands to increase that luxurious lifestyle. There was financial pressure to have a greater standard of luxury. And that greater standard of luxury was causing them to defraud those around them and to cheat. And the women were fueling that kind of way by the pressure they put on their husbands for a greater, higher standard of living. They were saying to their husbands, bring us more drinks. Bring us more drinks. So, women, would God say something to you today, if you're married, about how you speak to your husband? And your words can build up, can tear down, can, can create harmony, can disrupt harmony and put pressure, and you have great power there. And I know that sometimes because you are not respected, and, and you, it's the only weapon that you have, and so you resort to some kind of nagging or insult or, or, you know, just the buttons to push on your husband to set him off. You know those buttons and those things. And so you push those because you're angry and it's the only thing, only way that you can do that. And it's hard to, to let go of that weapon. Do you see that here in this verse? Verse 2, it says, The sovereign Lord has sworn by his holiness the time will surely come when you will be taken with hooks, the last of you with fish hooks. These women who live in luxury, he said, you'll be led as cattle like a bull with a ring in its nose. You'll be led away. I don't know if this was literal, if this was a literal or a figurative kind of thing. Could it have been that really they were led away with fish hooks? I do not know. But it says in verse 3, you will each go straight out through breaches in the wall and you'll be cast out toward harm and declares the Lord. So he's saying there'll be such destruction of your city that you don't have to go down the streets and wind to get to a gate. You'll go straight out through the wall because the wall will be broken down and there'll be breaches. Such will be the destruction of your city. This judgment is further described. Let me pick up one more passage from chapter 3. We'll go back there. Beginning in verse 11, therefore this is what the sovereign Lord says, an enemy will overrun your land, pull down your strongholds, and plunder your fortresses. We believe Amos spoke about 750 B.C. We don't know exactly, the opening verse gives us a reign of kings, but about 750 B.C. We do know that this prophecy came through in 721 B.C. when the Assyrians conquered the northern kingdom of Israel. So it was about 30 years from the time that God spoke this word that it came true. What is God saying through his word to us that could bring judgment within a 30-year span to our culture? This is what the Lord says, verse 12, as a shepherd rescues from the lion's mouth. There's that image of the lion that's all through the book of Amos. Remember, Amos was a shepherd, chapter 1, verse 1 said. That was his background. That's what he was familiar with. And as a shepherd rescues from the lion's mouth, only two leg bones or a piece of an ear. He maybe Amos had had that experience where his sheep had been attacked by a lion and he had tried to fight the lion off, but it was to no avail. And all he was able to rescue from the lion's mouth was two leg bones or a piece of an ear. 
And from that background, he says, so will the Israelites living in Samaria be rescued with only the head of a bed and a piece of fabric from a couch. He said the only thing that will be left, like, like those who sift through the disaster of a tornado, you know how they find just pieces of things. So he said of Israel, of your fancy furniture that you have, there'll be just a, oh, that, that was a headboard. Oh, that's, that's the corner of one of those fancy couches. He says in verse 13, hear this and testify against the descendants of Jacob, declares the Lord God Almighty. There's that name for God that we've been singing, Amos. He is Yahweh Elohim Sabaoth, the Lord God of armies, or the Lord God of hosts, or the Lord God Almighty. On the day I punish Israel for her sins, I'll destroy the altars of Bethel. Your places of worship will be gone. The horns of the altar will be cut off and fall to the ground. And I'll tear down the winter house along with the summer house. And the houses adorned with ivory will be destroyed. And the mansions will be demolished, declares the Lord. And so he said, for all of your opulence that you've enjoyed, I can take that away. All the luxury that you live in, he says, I can take that away. And your summer house and your winter house will be gone. And your, your houses adorned with ivory. This is the second time in the passages that I've read to you today that he's mentioned adorned with ivory. When archaeologists excavated the city of Samaria, they found 70 pieces of ivory that had been inlaid in furniture. The word of God is accurate. Archaeology repeatedly confirms the details of the word of God. Here's a little detail that they were on uh, sleeping on beds inlaid with ivory and that's indeed what they found when they excavated Samaria. Just another attestation to the accuracy of the word of God. But that was all that's left. The wood of course is rotted and gone and just that ivory that they so valued. They were so rich that even from Africa, long way to get elephants tusks to Israel, you know. All the way from Africa, they had imported this finery, but now it's just left in the ground. Well, this is some hard-hitting passages here. What can we learn from it? How do we apply this? Let me suggest that we ask ourselves four questions as we try to apply these passages this morning. Number one, would you think with me, are you idolizing wealth? I think you heard in all of these passages that God is condemning them for their focus on wealth. Now, money and wealth are not immoral. Money and wealth are not evil on their own. But the Bible says the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. And it is a, very, a great tendency, a great temptation in our lives for the things of this life, the fine things of life, money, wealth, income, to become our security, to become idolatry in our lives. And that's what he's criticizing them for. And is that true in your life, that your focus has been on wealth or money and material things, and that's the focus of your life. Let me read to you a couple of verses from the Gospel of Mark, what Jesus said. Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. Now let me tell you what that means. You know what that means? It means it's hard for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. That's what it means. It means exactly what it says. It is harder for rich people to go to heaven than it is poor people. You say, well, wait a minute, that can't be true. We all go to heaven the same way, don't we? Yes, the only way you go to heaven is to repent of your sin and put your faith in the only Son of God, Jesus Christ, and trust Him for your salvation. And anybody can do that, rich, poor, in between. But riches give you a false sense of security that you don't get desperate enough that you need a Savior. That's just true. 
Where are most people coming to Christ in our world today? It is in Africa and in Asia. It is not in North America. We have, we're the rich. You think, ah, you don't know me, preacher. I'm not rich. Let me just tell you, we have the fifth highest standard of living in the world behind Luxembourg, United Arab Emirates, Norway, and Switzerland. Arab oil, Swiss banking, we're next. Fifth highest standard of living in the world. Fifth highest median income in the world. We are in, and we, our income is 50 times higher than per, um, a median income, 50 times higher than that of India and China, most populous places in the world. We're the rich of the world. And so the temptation for us to idolize wealth is greater than anywhere else in the world except Luxembourg, United Arab Emirates, and Switzerland. And Jesus said, you cannot serve two masters. You'll love one and hate the other. You cannot serve both God and money. So there's going to be a great temptation for us to think, I'd be happier if I had this kind of car, this kind of furniture, if I could go to this restaurant, if I could have this kind of bed inlaid with ivory. Oh, I just want one of those ivory inlaid beds. And God warns us that money's not immoral. It's not immoral to, to, to be wealthy. But you're going to have a greater temptation the higher you move on the standard of living that that becomes the focus of your life and gives you a false sense of security because you're not as impacted by the things of life, the things that drive other people to their knees. Oh, God, you're not, you, you get through all of those things easier because you have that security blanket. So you've got to be careful of this temptation that money and wealth does not become uh, central. I'll go on to read the rest of this verse. As Jesus said in Mark 10, 24, disciples were amazed at those words that it's hard for the rich to get to heaven. But Jesus said again, children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who's rich to enter the kingdom of God. Because you've got to come to a point where you realize, I don't have all I need. I need Jesus. I need a Savior. Second question I would ask you to consider from these passages, are you living a self-centered life? That's the focus of these, uh, that it's all about me. Are you the center of your life? You would think that a self-centered life would make you the happiest. If I just take care of me, that would seem to be what would make me the happiest, right? But you don't make a good center for your life. And a self-indulgent, self-centered life will not bring you the greatest happiness. Jesus is the right center for a life. And when you put him at the center of your life, you'll have the greatest happiness. And it's very easy for us to make it all the world revolve around us, even in churches. One of the great problems of churches is that it becomes uh, self-absorbed, that I just want what I like and it it's my desires and my tastes. The temperature is just right for me. The music's just right for me. The size is just right for me. Parking's just right for me. Everything's right for me. That's what I want. And that we just reflect that. And it must be about God and about the lost before it's even about us. Let me, uh, as we talk about this self indulgent lifestyle, he talks about entertainment. Remember, strumming away. He talks about, he talks about um, uh, uh, indulgence. Is your life focused on pleasure and entertainment and sexual gratification? That's true of a lot of our, our world. And that, that's what we're after. We're after those three things. And if that's where, how you're driven, then you're living a self-absorbed life that will not bless you in the end. 
Let me talk to you about another component of this self-absorption that he talks about, and that's alcohol. We've seen twice here today and once before, so three times in Amos, that he's spoken about this danger. We'll put these three verses up there together if I can so you can see all of them. In chapter 2, previous weeks, he said to them, you made the Nazarites drink wine. So the Nazarites were spiritual leaders that took a vow of total abstinence from alcohol, but that was the people didn't like that, so they had made them compromise. They had made their leaders compromise. They had pressured or influenced them to compromise and to give up that vow. We still have that kind of vow among the leaders of our church. Alcohol is such a danger that for our staff and our deacons, they take a, a pledge, we're not going to drink alcohol. It's the same kind of thing there. Because leadership is important. And how you lead, and I'd encourage you men in, in your uh, families uh, to consider that kind of pledge as well. The Bible does not have a total prohibition against the use of alcohol. That's very true. But the Bible warns about that, and for leaders, it recommends that you set an example. And as I was raising two boys, man, I just wanted to be able to say to them, you've never seen me take a drink of alcohol, and you never will, and I'm going to be an example to you because I deal every day with people whose marriages and finances and lives are ruined by the use of alcohol. Every week I deal with that. And I'm, I'm probably speaking to somebody right now who drinks wine by the bowlfuls. You're just, you're just, you're, you're out of control. Probably speaking right now to some woman who says, bring me some more drinks. And I just want to say, probably several people in this room struggle with that. And I just want to say to you, that's such a destructive path in your life. And the message of Christianity is not, don't do that so much. That's not the message of Christianity. The method of Christianity is you admit your need and come to Jesus and he can give you power to overcome your sin and he can give you a better intoxication. There is a better of So the message of Christianity is not just negative, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this. That's what a lot of people think. The message of Christianity is these things are going to destroy you God wants to help you. He'll come into your life and fill you with greater joy, greater pleasure, greater intoxication, greater gratification, greater intimacy than you can ever know anywhere else. You put him at the center of your life. So maybe if you're there today, I'd call you to repent, to turn from that. Maybe other people have been trying to tell you that. Maybe your wife or your husband have been trying to tell you that. Today, would you just humble yourself? whether it's in regard to money or whether it's in regard to alcohol or whether it's in regard to some other gratification, and put God in the center of your life. I want to ask you a third question. Are you unconcerned and uninvolved? You see, he, he, he says, woe to those who are complacent or at ease. The, the thing was not so much that they had all this stuff, but that this stuff was causing them to be the center of their lives and that they, weren't they did not grieve for the sins of Joseph. He said they were unconcerned. Are you concerned? Do you care? And if you care, are you involved? Now you, say, you, you can't fix our world, but you can do something. Are you part of the problem or part of the solution? And I encourage you, every Christian ought to be in some way involved in serving God through his church and in your community. I'll give you an example of an opportunity that arises right now. We've, uh, we've had uh, this Supreme Court decision that, that has uh, made it possible for abortion laws to illegal abort, 
uh, make abortion illegal, and it's going to be so in Tennessee. And so Nancy Simpson's a member of our church and director of the local crisis pregnancy center has had a burden that churches be places where people can come and get help. The criticism we'll ha- we have is that Christians only care about life before birth. You don't care about life after birth. So a week from Wednesday begins uh, a training in our church where you go through a, a curriculum training together that Nancy will lead to equip people in our church to minister to young women and to dads who have contemplated abortion, who have problems, to show that we care and that we want to help fix the problem. We don't want to be just negative. We want to be positive. So you can pray about that a week from Wednesday. It'll begin at 6.30 in our CDP. Uh, That's just one example I'm saying to you. God won't call everybody to do that, but he calls some of you to do that. And that's an example of, are you involved in it? I believe that involvement in the church is one of the greatest ways that you can make a difference in our world. I believe that involvement with children and student ministry. We're going to change our world. We're probably not going to change it arguing with other 50-year-olds on Facebook. You're going to change it by changing this next generation and building into them the truth of the Word of God. Megan Clayton needs two workers in children's ministry right now in fourth and fifth grade, one on Sunday and one on Wednesday. Are you involved in any way? Are you serving God? Um, Are you concerned? Do you grieve? Fourth question I'd have you to ask yourself as we try to apply this passage. Are you pushing away any thoughts of judgment? These people, it says, were pushing away the day of disaster. Two, Two of Satan's great tools in bringing you into damnation are preoccupation and procrastination. He may not argue with you that the message is not true that I'm sharing. He may just concede that. And his strategy may be in your life. I, uh, let's think about, oh yeah, what about this? Uh, you got to get your car fixed. You gotta, or uh, next week, next Sunday. Think about that next Sunday. Preoccupation and procrastination. He, just won't, he doesn't necessarily want to deny the day of disaster. He just wants you to push it further down the road or get preoccupied with something else, and that will be just as effective. Do you ever think about eternity and your death and accountability and judgment? These people didn't. They kept pushing away any thought of disaster. And that's true in much of our culture. And when we do think of death, we only think about it in terms of, I want to cram as much stuff into my life as I can before I die. And every Facebook post is, Ten places in Colorado you got to see before you die. Five hikes you got to take. Four restaurants you got to go to. You got to do all it. We're going to die, so we got to cram all this stuff in. And the devil feeds into that self-indulgent lifestyle that I got to do more, more, more because I might die. And what God is saying is, there's an eternity there. Why don't you invest in that now? And why don't you be ready so that it will be a day of joy when He comes? What is God saying to you? God sends us tough crusty old people like Amos and me because he loves us and he wants to spare you any judgment he's proven that in the greatest act ever undertaken he sent his one and only son Jesus to die in your place that if you'll put your faith in him then you can find a center to your life that'll be fulfilling you get off the throne and put Jesus on the throne And he'll give you a a destiny that will last forever. And he'll give you a purpose in this life of changing this world. That's what he offers to you. He'll give you hope with your problems. If you're wrestling with any of those temptations I talked about, 
Jesus wants to help you. Oh, you may still have to do some other things. There may still be some process to go through, but Jesus can change your life. Would you come to him? Let's pray together. Oh, God, thank you that you loved us enough to send us people like Amos to tell us the truth. Lord, if you've spoken through your Holy Spirit to anyone here today who is at ease in Zion, who's drinking wine by the bowlfuls, who's putting pressure on their family by the way they talk, who is focused on material things and beds of ivory, oh God, forgive us. And God, we want to turn to you. We don't want money to be our God. We want you to be our God. We don't want pleasure to be our God. We want you to be our God. And oh Lord Jesus, thank you that you love us. And right now, may there be people crying out to you and say, Jesus, Jesus, I want you to be the center of my life. I want to obey you and follow you. I ask you for help in my life. May there be people right now calling out and say, Jesus, I want to be saved. I don't want to come to the day of disaster unprepared. Jesus, I ask you to forgive me and be my Savior and Lord. In your name we pray, amen. We stand to sing a song of invitation as God speaks to you while we sing. If you want to come forward for prayer, to confess your faith, to join our church, to make other commitments, this is a time you can respond as we sing right now. the God of covenant, of faithful promises. Time and time again, you have proven, you do just what you say.
morning sun to the setting same, I will praise your name. Great is your faithfulness to me. Amen. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated for a moment. Teresa Hall is a member of our lead pastor search team. And she is coming to share a report with you. And after she shares with you, Tim's going to come and close out our service. Teresa, you're welcome. Hi. I am a member of the Pastor Search Committee. Got to hold it right up there at your mouth. There you go. Thank you. (laughs) I'm a member of the Pastor Search Committee, and I have come today, first of all, to thank you for what you've done on filling out the surveys and uh, for all your prayers concerning this matter for our church and for our committee. And I wanted to let you know that we now have a pastor profile that is completed, and it will be in one of the upcoming newsletters. There'll be information about that so that you can look that over. Um, You know, God is the one that led us to Dr. Cox. I know that for sure. He's been such a good leader. And I know God will lead us to the next person, but it's not just up to us, the committee, because it's up to us as a church as a whole. Um, We all need to be praying about that, and that's why we come today asking uh, that you would pray for wisdom for us, because we know that God knows who the man is. We just have to discover who that man is ourselves. And so I come today earnestly asking uh, for prayers for our church and our committee we need to pray without ceasing and this is what I ask that you would pray for pray that we stay unified as a church during this process pray for our committee that we won't go astray or get sidetracked on any other but we will stay focused on the task that's at hand and I ask that you pray for wisdom uh, for us that when God reveals that man to us, that we, when we meet him or we see his information on paper, that we will recognize it, that we will be able to discern that this is truly the man that God has for our church. Thank you so much. If you're visiting with us, you may be kind of wondering well, what, what's going on. Uh, Dr. Cox has been with the church for 29 years, and he is ready to retire. So this time next year, a year from now, Dr. Cox is planning to retire, and so that's what uh, that's where that all's coming from. If you're visiting with us, you may not have known that. Thank you, Todd. As we close, just want to direct your attention to a few of the announcements there in the worship guide. You can see the upcoming CDP classes. Some of them are going to be uh, starting over the next couple of weeks, and so uh, find a class, come and get involved in those classes. You can also see... Christmas in August coming up. That's for the choir, and so they'll release what Christmas music they're going to be doing. And uh, I, basically, I think it's a, a chance for them to eat and celebrate Christmas. Oh, we're right. going to have a Christmas party in the choir room this, this Wednesday, man. It's and there's fun. some music playing in the background. Is that's what it's like? No, no, we're working. Yes, we're working. So uh, if you want to be a part of the choir and uh, come and participate in the Christmas katana and all that stuff coming up in December, come and listen to it. On, on the 31st and, and be part of that party. Uh, we also have an, a volleyball tournament coming up, and so I would love to invite you to be a part of that volleyball tournament. If uh, 
Maybe your connection group would like to get involved with that. That'd be a great way for you guys to have a fun night uh, hanging out and, and just connecting with other people in the church. It's, you know, all ages are invited. Uh, maybe your connection group doesn't want to, you know, your class doesn't want to uh, play, but you do. Well, then go sign up. You can play as an individual, and we'll form teams with, with all the individuals that uh, are, are signed up as well so that we can all play and have fun and participate. So uh, that sign-up is there at the welcome desk as you're leaving. You head out to your left. You'll see it over there. So don't miss out on the upcoming, uh, the classes that will be starting for Launchpad for your kids and also the church picnic that's coming up. Uh, on September 11th. And so that information uh, for both of those things are there in your worship guide. Let me close this out in prayer and we'll be uh, dismissed. Father in heaven, we thank you uh, for the chance to be gathered here as your body to worship you, uh, just to give you the praise. Father, to seek direction for our lives, uh, to, to focus our attention on you. Lord, sometimes, as we've heard today, our attention is, is too solely focused on us. And so, Lord, we pray that you help us uh, just to turn our hearts, to turn uh, our attention to you. And, Father, I, I pray for our church as we uh, look to, to fill the Dr. Cox's position. And so, Lord, those will be big shoes to fill. And so we just pray uh, for that committee. Pray for us as a church. God, it's in your son's name we pray. Great.